Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer, and I'm here with my partner, Mike Fernandez. Hey, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. So episode 39 of The Crux. Let's talk about a few things that are in the news. And then we have a great guest, Marta Newhart from Westinghouse, who's a terrific communicator with a fantastic career. But first, Mike, as PR practitioners, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about a couple of things related to tech companies. The first is Tesla is actually getting rid of its PR department. Pretty amazing. And pretty amazing. And so here's what happened. Every person working under the PR department at Tesla has either been moved to another division or has left altogether. Some of this is from PR Week. In fact, the last person in charge of communications at Tesla actually left in December 2019, leaving the media, quote unquote, with no formal person of contact since then. And the decision was made, uh, again, quote unquote, at the highest level of Tesla. So with regards to the now former PR team at Tesla, the- now Elon Musk is the head of PR, right? It sounds like it. And we know how well that's going in the past, which I guess is my point. But there's an electric vehicle called Electric that had praised the PR department. It was, you know, it was small, but they managed to correct a lot of misinformation in the press. This according to this trade publication and create some great blog posts and PR content over the years. You know, Musk is no fan of the media. The quote from him that I like the most is the media publish only enough to sugarcoat the lie which is why the public no longer respects them. Now, Musk is entitled to his opinion, of course, about the media sure. and, and about PR. But look, you know, a, a company as big and as in some respects controversial, thanks to Musk himself, to me needs a PR operation and PR professionals. It's, as we've talked about many times on the mm-hmm. crux, it's mm-hmm. not only critical just to media relations, but it's a critical part of the business operations of a company. And I'm not sure a few tweets from Musk are going to get it done. Again, reading PR Week, other professionals have weighed in on the move, noting that although decision seems drastic, it may be a lot more complex than meet the eye. And and again, who's to blame Musk? What is the stock now? It's gone up astronomically over the past few years. And Tesla says it will continue to communicate with investors but there certainly seems to be some risk about this. What do you think of this, Mike? Do you think other brands will follow suit or is this a one-off from a unique company? So it is a unique company. Elon Musk is a unique leader. I think he has it confused a bit in terms of what's a stakeholder and what's a channel. I think mm-hmm. treating the media as if it's a stakeholder is wrong. It's a, it's a channel, it's a vehicle by which to deliver one's messages. And Mm -hmm. yes, you know, there might be biases in the media and there might be tension with the media. You may not like certain reporters, but the simple fact is it's a vehicle by which to talk to a lot of stakeholders that matter. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you seed that ground, you should have no complaints. In politics, if you don't tell your story, your opponents will. Somebody else will, yeah. Somebody else will. The, the debate goes back and forth and everybody says, well, maybe we don't know exactly what's happening. And, and I would say the biggest caterwaul is that this is somehow a, a public relations nightmare or calamity. But I actually look at it from a slightly different perspective you know, sitting with my accounting degree and having sat <laughs> in boardrooms going back to 1990s, actually back into the early 1990s. This unique company has a market cap of over $425 billion. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I don't look at this as much as a, as a public relations calamity, but as an investor, I would look at this as financial malfeasance. Right. I think uh, as a as a poor risk decision, Mike. Right, right. Be, be, because as as I talk to investor analysts in Wall Street, and as I have through the years, what I've come to realize is that they try to understand real risk, but they also evaluate and trade on headline risk. Right. And I think what what has just happened here is that this great engineering company has just engineered itself into additional risk. Additional risk. You know, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think to sum it up, Mike, the, Andrew Lashinsky is a terrific tech reporter for Fortune magazine. He puts out a great newsletter every morning about tech industry. And he weighed in on this in his own column and said, Tesla won't realize it needs a PR department until it needs one. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's it, one of those things, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like we used to say again in politics, you know, the worst time to make a friend is when you need one. Exactly. And you know, and here you've got Tesla. Yeah, it's an interesting, exciting company. They're bringing new technology, new ways to get from point A to point Z. But, you know, it's a manufacturing company. Yep. It has, you know, big regulatory issues, both from a marketing side as well as from an engineering side. They have consumers. They have a multitude of issues that they're going to have to deal with and combat. And at some point, you know, somebody's going to spill some milk here. Exactly. And they have an erratic CEO, to say the least. The, the biggest crises that Tesla has faced in the past few years have been of Musk's own making. Great comments. All right. So here's a good one. Here's a good story that I like. Yeah. The NBA just finished. By the way, we didn't mention that the Yankees are out of, you know. Uh, oh, um, gee, don't, I don't go even, there. We, don't go there. All right. We're going to so go back. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go back and, and figure we were out. Both wrong. We were both wrong with our predictions, too. Yeah, I when know. When we it. got the shorter season, we said 36 games. I think, yeah. they, they, I think they won like 33, 34. Yeah. Close. It was close. Yeah, close. Yeah. Boy, but they I have had to, to struggle back. to get there. Man, oh man. Anyway, we could we could do a whole show on that. By contrast, the NBA and the Lakers just won the crown. Yeah. And and I think it's a really fascinating study about communications and brand. They finished the season, and I think it's you know remarkable that they got through it. They went into the bubble in Orlando, no real COVID problems, as opposed to other sports that we're seeing today, the NFL and Major League Baseball did run into problems. There's so many things about it that I admire. You know, they had to stay in the resort for you know Walt Disney World for several months, playing every few days. And the whole branding of the season with Black Lives Matter, 
-hmm. with the names on the jerseys. They really conveyed a message of unity and progress with regard to the social and political climate of the country following the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, it really is amazing. And who would have thought of this just a few years ago that a sports league leading social justice movement in the country. And in addition to that, it's not just the Black Lives Matter work that they did, but now they're turning to, or in some cases they already have, get out the vote. LeBron James has more than a vote campaign that he's doing, I think with Michelle Obama, you know, PSAs about voter registration, just across the board. Successful season, interesting games, a rebranding of the league that has really hit a chord with people in this country in a very difficult time. So what can we take away from all of this? You know, what should corporations take away from a league as prominent and as visible and as popular as the NBA leading with social purpose? I think it's an amazing story and it's somewhat of a turnaround story too. Yeah, yeah. You know, if we go back just six years ago, and remember 2014 when the, the league was up in arms with the L.A. Clippers debacle. Yeah. Where, where Donald the, Grant, right? Was that Donald Sterling. Sterling. Donald yeah. Sterling. Yeah. yeah he, got, he got fined like two and a half million dollars by the league for having made racist comments publicly, not to mention kind of legal marital affairs and, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and whatnot. And ultimately, Steve Ballmer had to come in and buy the L.A. Clippers. But Adam Silver has done an amazing job. Yes, I agree. NBA commissioner. And, and what it really goes to is what all good CEOs need to do is that they need to understand their employees, in this case, the players. You need to really understand the audience that you're delivering your product to. And you also need to understand the times that you're mm -hmm. in, how those you know come together almost as a warp and weft of fabric. They've done a terrific job, much better than any of the other major sports in terms of alignment between the owners and the players on just core values and the willingness, you know, to speak out. Yeah. And so I think those are, are all very, very important messages, but also to underscore that nobody's perfect. You know, it was what, about a year ago that the NBA was like moving in two or three directions yes. at once over a tweet from Daryl Morey, who oh, you know, right, right, right. management with the Houston Rockets, yep. who had criticized the People's Republic of China for what was happening in Hong Kong. And, you know, you had players taking all kinds of different positions, owners taking all different kinds of positions. Even Silver at one point coming out saying one thing and then taking back some of his words later. Right. That said, you know, nobody's perfect. But what's pretty exceptional was the smart way and, and how quickly in the middle of a season, the NBA they kind of first, you know, sort of, sort of okay, we're going to stop play. We're going to analyze the situation. We're going to bring this back up in a way that's fully COVID safe. Yep. We want our players to be safe. Yeah. And yet we, we have a talk about being agile, Mike, right? Oh. Talk, right. Oh, we talked yeah. a lot about agility. We talked about it with our BU colleagues. Absolutely. So your comment is an interesting one going back to the Hong Kong and China. Are you saying, Mike, that obviously that tweet from an NBA executive, you know, the NBA is trying to grow in China and had mm -hmm. very popular in China. Yeah. Since the and, days of Yao Ming. 
Yeah, exactly. Who also and played for, who also played for the Rockets. Played for the Rockets. And and so that one sort of cut across the business model, that controversy, and they were sort of ham-handed with that. In this case, I, I completely agree with you, consistent with their values. Their best assets, of course, are the talent. It's this is an entertainment league. Now they had some advantages with the bubble, you know, not as many people on a basketball team as there are on a football team and all of that kind of right. thing. But I, I'm with you. I am just so impressed by the courage and the agility to pull this off. I wonder what's going to happen with all of this, including college basketball, whether they're going to be able to get it done this winter and spring. And you see the NFL beginning to slowly move in this direction, admitting that maybe Kaepernick was right with his protests, kneeling. And But I just say tip of the cap well, here and, to and, the and, NBA. And, and you think about how many Black players that undoubtedly have gone through some of the complications that have come out, you know, for yeah. for those that live in in America these days or live in even other countries yes. these days. Here, still in the 21st century, people react poorly to people of color. It shouldn't yes. be that way. It shouldn't be. But that I'm way. glad Absolutely. the NBA took the stand that yeah. it, and stood up. Really remarkable. I wish, Mike, that Major League Baseball had shut down the season, then I wouldn't be so sad about the Yankees, right? If they yeah. had just canceled it. And, and let <laughs> well, me tell you. Well, well, yeah, at one point you had that you had that scene, now there weren't fans, you know, in the crowd, <laughs> uh, you know, where the Mets, you know, yes. ended uh, a game in the middle of the game. And, That's you know, right. And, and, and they That's put right, a, black, that. you know, a jersey with Black Lives Matter over home plate. Over home plate. Yeah, I was actually very touched by that. All right, last topic, and it really is about, we. I said we we're going to talk about tech more in addition to Tesla. Tech is really starting to bring the hammer down on content. Now, it's in degrees of hammering. But it's uh, let's let's tell you what, Maybe what's tinkering. happening. Maybe it's tinkering. Yeah. So Facebook joined some other social media outlets, Twitter, TikTok, cracking down on comment that can be characterized as misinformation or calling for bodily harm or death or political disinformation, et cetera. Part of it is in response to the president's contracting COVID and some people unbelievably wishing him the worst. And that kind of content would, would be removed, let's say, from Facebook. But specifically, Facebook is in the news for two related things, banning Holocaust denial content across its platform, which I'm amazed they hadn't done already, but nonetheless, right. and establishing a content oversight board. It's going to begin operations this month and staffed by 20, roughly 20 members, former judges, lawyers, and journalists, according to Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg famously, or maybe infamously, has previously refused to address content issues in the name of free speech, but he has noted recently his thinking has involved. Twitter and TikTok already have mechanisms for identifying such information. And Twitter is also looking at reorganizing its algorithm and how larger accounts are amplified on the platform. So what do you make of these moves? Are these truly proactive, progressive moves? Or are they just a reflection of how behind the times maybe in some people's eyes these tech platforms are? First of all, I don't think it's it's all that simple, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on one hand, these technology companies got into the business to kind of solve a problem to allow people to communicate in one mm -hmm. way or another. Yep. But I think they went into the business not necessarily thinking of all the implications, right? And so what we come into is we come into a world where it's kind of free speech, 
versus cyberbullying, threats, misinformation, right? You know, political polarization. All of those things I don't think were contemplated by them in the beginning. That doesn't mean that they don't have responsibility. I mean, we can go back to Oliver Wendell Holmes, like in 1919, <laughs> you know, where he famously wrote an opinion that, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. And what that kind of established is even from a legal standpoint, even though we value the First Amendment in the United States, that not all speech should be fully protected. And so what's also interesting here is from how these companies, how a Facebook and how a Twitter and a TikTok think of themselves as organizations, because they've tried to avoid being thought of as publishers, right? That's right. Being in the media business. Instead, they like to think that, you know, all they've done is provide an infrastructure. So it sounds as though Twitter, TikTok, Facebook are now awakening to this notion that they have some responsibility. They are media companies. Uh, And they are media companies. That said, you hope that in their attempt to regulate this so that the speech does no harm, that they don't go overboard in one direction, because I'm Mm -hmm. reminded of of another comment from the previous century that came from uh, Joseph Stalin. You know, mm-hmm. where, where one of said, your favorites, Mike. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> I, where he said famously that ideas are more powerful than guns. Yeah. But he went on to say, we wouldn't let our enemies have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, um, I, I think my parents felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing is, I look at this, specifically Facebook, and whether 20 people, to your point, the problem is so big. I mean, the volume. Oh, can you imagine? uh, Right. How how are you going to stop everything? Now, they got to create these algorithms to try and catch these things. Right. And and the algorithms have to be built smart enough that all of a sudden it not only interrupts it, but it pulls it It or changes it. I just wonder, not that I'm suggesting that the 20 people are are going to be doing this. I know it's an oversight kind of board, Mm -hmm. but the the volume of the the problem is immense Mm -hmm. and almost impossible just by sheer numbers to police. Again, this is probably the third or fourth iteration of some kind of content control that they're trying to exercise. But I just think it's going to be sort of whistling in the wind for them particularly, maybe Twitter and maybe TikTok have a better chance at doing this. And let's also put on the table here and be honest, you know, the tech companies are under a microscope right now. Some of these actions may be in response to that. And certainly TikTok has been under the microscope here in the US for political reasons related to national security, allegedly. But I'm hopeful. I would suggest to our listeners too, there's a great story in the New Yorker this week called Why Facebook Can't Fix Itself. Right. And if you want to really understand the immensity of the problem, how big it is, take a look at that. You know, it's a it's a great article. Okay, so great stuff, Mike. You're really sharp this week. Always. You got it going on, man. So Stalin, Oliver. But but, but I still only have a face for radio. (laughs) So we also have a great guest, Marta Newhart from Westinghouse. And let's go to that interview.
Gary, our guest today on The Crux is the Chief Communications Officer for Westinghouse Electric Company, one of the world's leading nuclear technology companies. During her highly successful career, she's worked in communications and marketing for a number of innovative technology-driven companies. For more than a decade, she was at Boeing, you know, the world's largest aerospace company and leading provider of airplanes, led communications and public affairs for what had been Covidian's largest business unit, which is now a part of Medtronic, one of the world's largest medical device companies. She's also been uh, the global vice president of communications at Johnson Controls, which we associate, or at least I associate, with kind of smart central systems that automate buildings and businesses and homes, making them both smarter and more energy efficient. In fact, I can remember as a student at Georgetown years ago, Johnson Controls came in and did marvelous things with all of the buildings on campus. What we have today is we have somebody who's multi-industry, multi-talented, Marta Newhart, welcome to the Crux. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's really good to be here. Yeah, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Now, one of the items I didn't mention in this kind of long, very impressive list of jobs and a sterling career is your personal background. And you and I have been friends for some time, and I know a little bit about that background. You're Mexican-American. Your grandparents came from very humble beginnings, moved to the U.S. from Mexico in search of a better life. Your grandfather took all kinds of different jobs when he first came, but ultimately built what would become, I think, the, the largest Hispanic bakery in all of Arizona. Two generations later, his granddaughter, you, you're sitting in boardrooms of some of America's largest companies, counseling CEOs and other executives and board members on communications, marketing, public affairs. Sounds a bit like an American dream to me. <laughs> um, but I was personally moved recently when I read an account of your growing up in the magazine Hispanic Executive that underscored that your road to success really hasn't been kind of a straight path or a straight line. Recount for us, if you would, the, the boardroom encounter that was articulated in the magazine and what an executive at one of your earlier companies had to say to you about your own ethnicity. You know, it was a really interesting experience, especially to have at such a young age and to be so young in your career. And so I was part of a small organization that was called High Potentials. Every company has them, mm -hmm. High Pots, right? And they had us meet with several senior leaders in the company. And one day they had us meet with the CHRO and they had us all go into the boardroom. And you know, boardrooms today are much smaller and not as fancy as they used to be. They used to be very expensive tables and these big chairs and, I mean, all these different types of things to drink and eat. And those days are gone. But that was the kind of boardroom that I walked into. These high back leather chairs, all of this. So I'm walking in with maybe 10 or 15 other young professionals that are on this high pot. And I think I was maybe one or two women in, in the entire group. And so we're sitting down feeling really proud of ourselves. And, you know, we're all in our gray and blue suits. We kind of look uniform. 
And we're sitting down and the guest of honor comes in, it's a CHRO, and he starts going around the table and he starts talking to every member that's sitting there. And when he got to me, he kind of paused and he said, Marta Newhart, you're, you're somebody, right? And I thought, well, yeah, sure I am. Naively, I thought, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a high pot. I didn't say yeah. that, but that's what I was thinking, right? right? And so he kept saying that you're something and here it comes. What's your ethnicity? And I said, I'm Mexican-American. Wow. Without hesitation, without hesitation, he said, thank God you don't look like it. You know, I kind of sat back in my chair, right? And I thought, well, well, of course I look like it. What does that mean? And then it starts to sink in because the rest of the room is silent. They don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're thinking the same thing you are. And what I realized was identity was had to be uniform, that they weren't looking for people who had a different identity. They were looking for more of the same. All right. You know, and when you go through something like that at a young age, you quickly realize, especially as we came into the diversity inclusion discussion, And I know you guys have talked about this a lot. You really understand the importance of inclusion. It is such an important thing to business. You know what I mean? Because at that moment, it probably took me a little while to kind of come out of that shell and really show that that ethnic diversity really added to business. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean. I mean, it's rare, I think, that people expect Hispanic or Latino to be six foot five inches tall like I am. And and so that's always somewhat startling to (laughs) people. Well, you are an anomaly. In a a number of ways, as Gary will verify. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. But as someone with a Latino background, you know, and and we're in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month, it marks a period of time in history in Central America and Mexico where countries were seceding from Spain. And on the back end, it's kind of close to Columbus Day, which was kind of the infusion of uh, Spain and Europe into the new world. But I'm curious as to how experiences like the one you just spoke of, you know, how did that really shape you as an executive? And has it made you a different kind of executive as you've gone from company to company? I think as a young manager and going through that experience, you know, I was really reminded that the business world wants us to fit in into a predetermined box. And that makes other people feel comfortable. But I think when we get to that point where we're uncomfortable. Kind of that old dirty comment, you have your place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you have that a little bit of discomfort and you surround yourself with people that are different than you, then we're in a good place. Here's the thing. You know, Mike, I didn't want to downplay my identity. My identity played a big role in getting to where I was. When you know fear at a very young age and you know how to work through it, it doesn't mean that you're just courageous, but you know how to be courageous because you've known that fear. Yeah. That's what being competitive in business is all about, right? Having the courage to take risks, you know, balance risks and things like that. That's a really important concept. And I think what we underestimate 
is really the power that Hispanics, Latinos, and Latinx, that they all bring to the table because nine times out of 10, they can tell you stories like what I've had. They yeah. can tell you about coming to this country in a way that was not favorable for them or their mm -hmm. families. Right. And I've heard you talk about, you know, you went with your family to Mexico and kind of an odd border incident that you had as a young child, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we went many times, we would cross the border. And of course, getting into Mexico is no problem. Right. And once you're in there, you and know, it was a lot used... easier in an earlier day, too. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure, for sure. And once you get in there, you know, people like Mike and I just kind of, we get lost in the crowd. People say, you know, like that C.R. Chirot said, thank God you don't look like it. But, but I do. Mike does. Yeah. If, you, if you were to see us in Mexico City, we would get lost in a crowd. Just because, you know, that people don't look the traditional way that you think they do. Because... Right. Hollywood has really stereotyped us. But let me get back to the story. So the story about going to Mexico and then coming back across the border. And so a lot of times when we would go to our relatives, they didn't have floors in their houses. It was dirt. And we would, we would go there and we would visit. And, you know, sometimes when we come back, you're a little bit dirty, right? Because you're mm -hmm. out there in the dust sure. and it's the desert and the whole thing. So my parents' station wagon didn't run very well. And they always had this thing, you know, God, I hope it doesn't break down at the border because they were really <laughs> screwed, you know. But this time when we were crossing, I was sitting in the back seat and my mother said to me, they called me uh, Martita, which means little Marta in Spanish. Uh -huh. She said, Martita, if anything happens, just run as fast as you can. Like it's a game you know, run as fast as you can across the border. And I promise I will find you. I will find you. I promise. So we're getting up to the border guard and the border guard talks to my mother. And by then her English was just perfect. You know, there was no accent. It's like you and I speaking. And then he looks in the back seat and he sees me and he says, where are you from? You know, almost, you know, condescending, like it's a, a command. And boy, did my heart just come out of my chest. I bet. Wow. I'm eight years old. My mother answered. She said, Olympia, Washington. And he said, I didn't ask you. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, as a child, when you see two adults arguing, it's not a good thing, right? Especially when you're trying to get back into your home country. So I thought, do I push the car door open and run? Or do okay. I answer the question? So I'm yeah. sitting there pausing and that pause made him more adamant. That's what made him more adamant. And he said, I'm only going to ask you one more time. Where are you from? And I said, Olympia, Washington. And I'm sure my voice cracked because I could barely speak. I was so worried. And he kind of had this go on, get out of here kind of thing. And we, and we went through, but I was ready to run. I mean, I was ready to run to the other side. And what do you learn from that? I mean, you learn that appearance seems to matter. Appearance and identity really seem to matter. I think in corporate America today, especially, we are, we are in the best time of corporate America, Gary and Mike, because it's much more accepting than it has ever been. Mm -hmm. And so we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg but boy, we're going to hit our stride here in the coming years about accepting people for for everything that they bring to the table. That's that's a Marta. That's a great story and a great observation. I tend to agree with you, and I 
On this issue particularly, again, I think we're going to see companies leading the way, and they are already, in fact. And if you look back over the past decade and a half on things like LGBTQ rights, changes to marriage laws, it certainly was the corporate voice that spoke the loudest and drove the, the, the most change. And so I'm so glad to hear you say that you think we're really beginning to hit our stride because I do think I do think that's the case. And thank goodness, because we're in a bit of a vacuum from a governmental standpoint and from a sort of a leadership standpoint. But I, I want to talk to you. And by the way, welcome to the Crux. It's great, great to have you on. And boy, you're a great storyteller. So I'm an old practitioner now. I'm retired. <laughs> You know, <laughs> broken down. Mike's back yeah, in the yeah, game yeah. at Enbridge and, and elsewhere. When I listen to stories like you're telling and I listen to your background, uh, you know, I'm always trying to listen for things I can translate into the classroom. And I imagine given your experience, you have some insights and lessons you can provide not only to students, but the industry more broadly about diversity and inclusion. And what are some of the things that agencies, in-house shops, and even societies like the Page Society, which is very much a leader in diversity and inclusion and becoming a, a leader, what can they be doing to create more diverse and inclusive workplaces? You know, you're right about Page. I'm on the diversity and inclusion subcommittee, and we're mm -hmm. doing a lot of work, a lot of really great things. And we're moving, Gary, to this, this space where we're done talking. We've mm -hmm. got to put our hand on the scale. We've yeah. got to take action. And there's ways to do it. The things that I think all of the organizations you spoke about can do is, is not only put their hand on the scale, but quit complaining that the pipeline isn't full of diverse candidates. Right, right. And quit complaining to your HR people that they're not bringing you diverse candidates. We all have great networks. The people in our function, in our business, in our whatever you want to call it, we have great networks. Like you can call me up and say, I need this, or right. I can call you up and say, I need, and it happens. I mean, we have one of the best networks. So go out and get to the pipeline. That's one thing you can do. Don't sit and wait for HR to bring it to you. Mm -hmm. Because especially at traditional companies, like the one I'm at, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. Well-intended people. It's but not going to happen organically, right? Exactly. It, That's it, you right. You have to make it your job. Yeah. And there's things that you have to really look at. I mean, you have to go beyond having a slate of candidates. You really have to go to the source. So there are a lot of universities, and yours is one of them, that's a source for diverse candidates. You know, um, last week in PAGE, we had our annual conference and I led a discussion on diversity and inclusion. And one of the things that came up from one of the agency leaders was she felt that her business was a pipeline for diverse candidates. So hmm. she grooms them, builds them up, and then we all take them from her. So That's she was terrific. asking us, how does she keep them? Right, right. right. So there's all these things that can be done and they can be done very effectively. But in addition to that, it's how you think. It's really how you think. You know, you talked the other day about societal acumen. Mm -hmm. I would add to that. What a great concept, right? I would add to that. you got to have empathy. So I don't know what it's like to be a Gary Sheffer. I just don't. You don't you know don't what it's like. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> he's right. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Mike, Mike knows. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> And you don't know what it's like to be a Martha Newhart. You don't, right. you don't know. 
But if we are empathetic leaders, we can put ourselves in your shoes and we can help bring you up through the organization. That's something we don't really talk about. You know, we talk about mentoring and sponsorship. Okay, great. But how does that really come to play? I mean, how am I really putting myself in the shoes of my African-American, yeah, and my African-American employees Mm -hmm. and the people that I want to hire and all of that? That's the thing I think we're missing. Marta, I was going to just, I'm I'm sorry to jump in, but your point about, I agree. I I, I think if you want to find diverse talent, you will, Mm -hmm. right? It's It's the inclusion part. I know as a CCO, that's where I fell down, mm-hmm. right? Where I didn't, as you just said, put myself in the shoes of the people that looked around a room and they were the only ones that looked like themselves, right? The only mm-hmm. people of color often in a room or on a team or even broadly across a big business. What's the key to the inclusion part? How do you put yourself in the shoes of someone like yourself or a young black communicator who you just brought onto your team. Yeah, so you're not alone. I, I think a lot of corporate America falls down on inclusion. Yeah. So when you give an organization and executives diversity goals to meet, they're going to meet them, right? Because mm-hmm. their bonus depends on it, everything. Definitely. Yep. They're going to meet them. Now, inclusion is the hard part. And inclusion is what you're getting at. So inclusion is really about trying to understand that person in their shoes where they come from. It starts with you. You got to be vulnerable. So that article that Mike referenced in Hispanic Executive, pretty vulnerable, right? I mean, pretty out there. I mean, you don't really hear people in corporate America talking like that. And I knew it was a risk, but I thought, you know, if somebody sees this as an authentic way of leading, maybe it's going to encourage them to be authentic as well. Yeah, yeah. So you have unique experiences, right? You have experiences that a lot of ethnic minorities may never have, but you don't talk about them. Mm -hmm. But if you talk about them in a way that makes you vulnerable, Gary, then you start to understand where they're coming from. So this gets pretty deep, but you got to really consider that they have a different point of view than you, but you have great stories to share as well. And when you get them to the table and you're including them, in business decisions, communications decisions, mm-hmm. your effectivity goes way up. I yeah. mean, there's business rationale for this. You guys have all read all mm-hmm. read the, the stats. The business rationale the case is over, there. Yeah. Exactly. Over and over again, there's a reason to do it. But think of what you're doing for that person's career, mm-hmm. the opportunity they would never get. And if you thought about that more, I mean, you're, you're, you're a great guy. You want to help them, right? Yeah, that, that's it right. It isn't, isn't just about guidance. It's about mm-hmm. inclusion in a way that pulls their perspective out. It's going to make your business stronger. That's so smart, Marta. And and I'm, I'm glad to hear you're on the PAGE committee. I agree with Charlene Wheelis as the head of PAGE now. We're fortuitous, you know, sort of timing to have Charlene in that position. And, and she is not going to let us, meaning the PAGE Society, get away with not taking action, not putting our hand on the scale. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that work that we're going to be doing. I'm going to shift gears a minute to something that Mike and I talk a lot about on the show. So I, I'm really struck by how similar our backgrounds are in a lot of ways and the sort of multiplicity of industries that we worked across. I got it from one company. You got it from multiple 
companies, but healthcare, equipment, nuclear, which we can talk about in a minute. But there's a common thread that runs across all of those, you know, smart buildings, nuclear energy. It's the role that science and engineering play in all of them. You know, I had that when I was at GE, we had something like 40,000 engineers at GE when I was there, but I'm troubled by how difficult and challenging it is today to communicate a company story in a world that doesn't really understand science, but mistrusts it in almost a boastful way that you don't believe the science. You're in an industry that you have to rely on the expertise of your scientists and engineers. How do you manage that? In a world that needs the science, right? If I could just add to your your yeah. setup there, Gary, the world that really needs that science. Mm-hmm. You know, social media, one of the greatest inventions of our careers. I mean, our careers were very different before 2008. And they became so much more amplified afterwards. Better, for worse, I think for the better. And and that has been a platform for us to use, but also for special interest groups to use against us. Corporate America doesn't really have a face anymore. Mm -hmm. Unless you kind of look at Tesla and Elon Musk, or you look at, you know, look at GE when you were there. Definitely had a face, right? I mean, it was clear, right? That's not the case in a lot of companies, in Mm -hmm. a lot of traditional science companies. We don't have that anymore. Now, was there a benefit to that? Sure. But in these faceless companies, I think it's almost easier for organizations or for NGOs to come and talk against the science, to come and talk about what they believe, even sometimes naively, about what we're doing. And I think the other thing that's happened here is Hollywood. You know, I could talk to you all day about how Hollywood (laughs) portrays Mexican-Americans. Right. You know, I was just talking last week at Syracuse University, and I told them the stats on almost 50,000 roles coming out of Hollywood in the last 10 years, only 3% of those went to Latinos. Mm -hmm. And of those 3%, almost 100% of those were people who were poor criminal or downtrodden. So we're mm-hmm. stereotyped. Science is also stereotyped and it yes. and it's easy to hit up against corporations that are faceless. So here's the thing, that's on us. As CCOs, we've got to tell the story of the company. It's not just on our CEOs. We're right there too. So right. we have to tell that story. And as Mike knows, and what he's doing at Enbridge is he's got a whole lot of stakeholders. We do too. We have a whole lot of stakeholders that we have to have the shared purpose with, and we have to get them to that point. In my world, there's a lot of misconceptions about the energy and the science and the technology that we provide. There's a lot of misconceptions. Mm -hmm. So you, you can see it as a dream job. You go in and you can change everything. Or you can see it as these huge mountains in front of you, you know, that you have to climb. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me in the middle of this, and and Gary, you were a reporter once. So actually, I'm going to ask a question that kind of can go to Gary or you. But I think the challenge is we have so many players in the media that look at stories and they want balance. And balance means you have a side A and a side B. And in kind of that flip side mentality, I don't know that it's easy to get to the truth. 
In other words, they will portray, you know, a set of facts or a set of positions as equal. And that that's when we start to get into trouble. So how do you deal with that? I think the first thing for us was I had to convince the team that we needed to do that. Mm-hmm. Because as you guys know, in some traditional companies, they just don't think that way. Mm-hmm. It's better just to keep your head down, keep working, and good things will happen, right? We don't live in that kind of world anymore. We've got to be out there working with these different constituents. We have to be out there. I feel sometimes like I do more selling internally of the message and yes. the purpose than I do externally. I yes. see Mike yeah. smiling. Yeah. 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 You, you guys, you guys see that too? Oh, totally. And at different points in my career, that was the case. Now, kind of building on that a, a, a bit, and, and again, Gary may want, want to jump in here <laughs> given his GE experience, but l- let's go to the industry specific because I know that Gary was at GE when the incident happened at Fukushima, Japan, and that's had huge repercussions, I think, for at least general public acceptance of nuclear energy, even though many parts of the world are highly dependent on nuclear energy for electricity. So how do you communicate the future of nuclear energy in a world of doubt? You know, it's interesting. Um, There's been a lot of perpetuation about the unsafe record of nuclear and I pulled some stats the other day on the safety rate of, of nuclear. It's right up there with wind and solar and hydro is probably has the best safety record. Mm-hmm. But when you look at coal or oil or even natural gas, they're much different mm-hmm. than nuclear, wind and solar. So the record is clear, the stats are clear. The challenge is how do you make sure that people know that and understand it in a way that as they get their electricity from their utilities, they're as receptive to renewables as they are nuclear. And that's the challenge that we're facing right now Mm -hmm. is helping our customers, helping them understand the value of nuclear, the safety record of it, what it provides, it's carbon free, how it helps a lot of countries meet their carbon-free goals, and how its reliability rate is even better than solar mm-hmm. or wind. Or wind, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, talk about Hollywood and stereotyping. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a huge hurdle to overcome from a nuclear standpoint. And honestly, I, I, I just finished the book, Midnight in Chernobyl, mm-hmm. right? Which is a fascinating retelling of what happened there uh, and um, a painful retelling for those of us who've worked in nuclear industry. You know, Fukushima was a facility that was commissioned in 1971. GE designed those reactors that essentially melted down back in the 60s, I think when Lyndon Johnson was the president of the United States. But some things that come across that I remember from that, Marta, and I'd like to get your reaction to. uh, One, I, I thought the nuclear industry itself, I don't know whether this is fair or not or how you see it, was too reliant on its trade association to stand up for the technology and the safety record that you just talked about, which is a good trade association, don't get me wrong. But if you're going to be a proponent and a participant in that industry, I think you have to sort of stand tall and tell the story 
as loud as you can. And honestly, during Fukushima, everyone was sort of running for the hills. But what's the story of nuclear beyond the safety record and that you can tell to people now that will restore confidence, build confidence in the technology? Well, nuclear is 92% reliable. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a couple of examples. Look at California and let's look at Germany. So California has rolling blackouts right now. They made a decision several years ago to decommission mm -hmm. some of their nuclear plants. Germany, after Fukushima, made a decision to do the same, right? Correct, yeah. And now they have a situation where in Germany, they are going to decommission almost all of them by the end of 2022. So what has happened there is they become more reliant on fossil fuels because that leap to renewables, it's not there yet. That pathway to full renewable energy, it's not there yet. And it's not as reliable as nuclear energy. So if you look at how nuclear is carbon free, the Chinese get it, the Japanese get it, right. the people from India want it, Eastern Europe, the same thing, they are going to be able to meet their goals. I mean, look at the UK right now. The UK is on a real clear path to meet their goals for carbon free. I think it's 2030, 2040. It's not very far away. Right. And they're on a real clear path. Nuclear is a, is a big part of that. So some of the people who are going to listen to this podcast are going to say, wait a minute, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was carbon-free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't know it was that safe. Yeah. I well, didn't they don't know think, these They things. don't think about that. They think yeah. of the few accidents that took place some years ago. Well, and to Gary's point, yeah. because of who was communicating on behalf of the companies. Yeah. And now you see a shift in terms of who's communicating on behalf of them. We are. We're communicating yeah. on behalf of ourselves. So that's good. a really good point. That's yeah. a great. Hey, Marta, do you think in the United States, is it the nuclear waste issue, the spent fuel? Is, is that what holds it back here? Or is it some of the things we've been talking about? You know, what to do with spent fuel rods, et cetera, where to store them, all of that just sort of falling off the radar. Is that the impediment here to what seems like a fairly sensible approach to meeting our environmental and energy needs? I think it might even be simpler than that. It may just be the misconceptions have just been perpetuated. And this is a good case in why communications is such a powerful force for business to really set the record straight. When we talk about waste, we talk about waste of what comes from the fuel spent from a nuclear reactor. And if you think about the waste that comes from natural gas and coal and oil, so let's take 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas, one ton of coal, and 120 gallons of natural gas. There is less waste that's actually coming out of reactor. Because what happens is from that tiny fuel pellet, the waste is actually condensed. It's condensed into a containment facility that's actually housed and then it's not dissipated into the atmosphere like the rest of the waste from these other sources that we talked about. And so if you're looking pound to pound at the type of waste that's being emitted, it's much less from nuclear reactors, nuclear energy. The actual fuel spent 
is very, very small. I think almost every device for energy has its strengths and its weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think, you know, the the thing that drives people isn't so much the density of the waste, it's the nature of the waste. Mm. So the fact that for some amount of time as radiation prompts people to think differently, you know, and as we look at sort of the various forms of energy, whether it's for electricity or not, we see that, you know, we're still as a society fairly dependent on oil and then coal and then natural gas and then nuclear and then all of these renewables. And to your point in terms of reliability, I mean, the challenge for a long time with the renewables is the, how do you actually transport the energy acquired from a windmill or from solar panels panels, and it needs to be stored and it dissipates as it moves from point A to point Z in a way that you don't have that same dissipation with nuclear. So the, the other aspect, I guess, in my mind is in some ways your most important audience. Well, yes, you need to be communicating to the general public. Probably the biggest stakeholder you need to move are public policymakers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any key learnings as you're sort of in this industry that you start to say, say, you know what, this is what we need to do differently with public policymakers in order to have them better understand what we're doing. And, you know, public policymakers in some ways are are different. And sometimes they are better educated, sometimes less educated, uh, you know, than, uh, than the general population. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you and your team think about communicating to government? Remember, we used to say we need a seat at the table. Okay, so now we have a seat at a lot of tables. So here's the partnership. So our utilities, along with the Nuclear Energy Institute, NEI, Mm -hmm. And Neil Cohen now is an SVP at NEI, and then companies like Westinghouse. So all of the communication leaders in this coalition are working together. It kind of started with XL Energy, which is out west. Right. And what Neil's work at the NEI. A lot of focus groups on messaging nuclear, what words worked, what context of words work what words work with Republicans and Democrats, what types of language doesn't work. You know, we talk about climate change or a changing climate. You know, he even dissected how those words were used. So what we said was, hey, give us your research. We're gonna use that because you've already done the heavy lift. We're gonna take that language and put it into the stories that we spread throughout the industry. We're also going to partner with our customers like at Excel or at Southern. And by the way, Southern has two nuclear plants that are coming online. Yes. You know, and that's what the first two in the U.S. in the last 30 years. Yep. Yep. Big deal. Big deal for the industry. But what we've done is we've said as communication leadership, this is up to us. And we have to do it as this coalition. So we target the DOE. We target the different offices in the DOE, and we do the same in Europe and each one of the agencies in Europe. So the nuclear regulatory agencies across Europe and Asia and all of those people, we are targeting 
with messaging that was actually developed between a small coalition of people, just really good communicators. Mm -hmm. And so you think about the power of our function and what we do, that's huge. That, That work right there is going to change the minds of people everywhere about nuclear. Right. It's going to decouple all of those misconceptions. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Marta, someone like you is telling the story. We live in a time when we've built a system based on expertise. I mean, everything that you do every day is built on expertise, whether it's the regulator is, is supposed to have some expertise, the people in your company are, and for political reasons or whatever, social reasons, we've rejected experts. We've seen it in COVID. Mm-hmm and we see it in other parts of our life, the only way you're going to re-inject some of that science into all of this is to make the story more relatable. And clearly we've heard today that you're a good storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, seriously, I mean that in, um, in a positive way. In a positive way, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, you. but you, that's what you know, your parents used to say, oh, you tell so many stories, I don't know what to think. This is in a good way. That was the bad way. You know, with your parents. So I guess one other observation I have is, as we kind of get to, to, to the end here, it's clear to me when you look at the importance of nuclear energy today, it provides something probably in excess of 10% of the world's electricity, 30% of the world's low carbon power that nuclear is is going to be there. It, it's likely to grow. Other forms of energy that we're dependent upon are going to need certain breakthroughs in order to, particularly I'm thinking renewables, in order to be successful. We're still going to be dependent on fossil fuels to varying extent. So I think the the dynamic is there. We're still going to have the forms that we have. They're going to jostle over time. And what really drives it is the fact that we all want our homes and businesses to be cool during the summer. We want them to be warm during the winter. You know, we want to be able to get in a vehicle, whether that's a car, a plane, or a train, and get from point A to point B. And we all love our devices and we need the electricity for our computers and our handhelds. So you are in an important place. We are thrilled to have you on the show today. We wish you well as you help navigate this journey for Westinghouse and it's been a delight. So It's been great to be here, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. And I would just leave you with, if you care about carbon, you have to care about nuclear. Because as Mike said, it's about 14% of the carbon-free electricity comes from nuclear energy across the world. And 55% of the carbon-free electricity in the U.S. comes from nuclear energy. It's a big deal. Thanks for having me, Mike and Gary. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your inspiring story. I mean, that's, that's really... Terrific. So thank you for being on the crux. We'll be sending a t-shirt and a mug. We'll make sure to get oh, love it. address. Completely. Thank you. Uh, wear proudly. The, I will. Very high, highly sought after. <laughs> very highly sought it's after. It's mine now. I'm not yeah. sharing. <laughs> Again, thanks for your insights on thanks, public Marta. relations, thank diversity, you. and the industry. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen 
for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.